always said we did it by uh, following Matthew 6.33 to put his kingdom first and he'll, he'll provide your, your needs. You do, you do your duty and go to work when you're supposed to and all of a sudden the years pass and you've raised them. And it goes fast, doesn't it? Well, I'm thankful to be here. It's been another uh, blessing uh, with this feast. Um, I love the symbology of it, uh, driving out and purging out the leaven. Um, of course, symbolic of sin, as you all well know. And so I'd like to touch on a few things. We're going to go back in some ancient history and uh, then go to some more recent history, which will all biblical history, uh, but it'll just bring us up to the first couple centuries. Uh, but I thought there were some good parallels to be drawn. As I was listening to the speakers over the week, um, you know, several different things came to mind, and I made some adjustments on notes, and uh, it, it was really a good thing, and it's uh, good to see how the Holy Spirit just weaves all those thoughts together and makes it complete. And so I sure did get to experience that again this week, and it's, uh, it's a great thing to say and to see. So let's uh, have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this time together, Lord. It's a blessing to be here with this body. Father, it's a blessing to have the knowledge of your ways, Father, and we ask that you would give us a heart to always follow, Father, and follow you with gladness of heart and with joy. Pass it down to the next ones, Father, and help us to keep doing our duty, Father. I pray that you would guide and direct every thought, word, and step that is spoken tonight and throughout the rest of the feast, Father, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to start off in uh, Isaiah chapter 49. And there's no mention of Passover here yet, but we'll, we'll get to that. But I thought this fit in pretty well with the, <clears throat> with the theme. And we'll start in verse 1. Listen a while unto me, and hearken, ye people, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore and preserve the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. 
Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him who, hath, to him who man despiseth, to him who the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, in, a, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. And I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. So this chapter really uh, sums up a, a good bit of uh, early history. And you can see Isaiah being called here and even goes goes into uh, Israel being regathered. And you can see those prophetic verses uh, speaking of the Christ that's going to come. And uh, sometimes at home as I'm talking to people who have some biblical knowledge, um, I'll try to make mention of that, that Israel of old was cast off and divorced and go through that thing and, and come back to the cross where, where the regathering took place officially. And, of course, most haven't heard of that. But it ties in so beautifully, and you just, once you see it, you see it everywhere, don't you? So this, uh, I, don't know, I, I was reading through a few weeks ago, and we were going through Isaiah, and that stuck with me, and I just thought that would uh, fit with the theme. And... Going further with the theme of unity, because just as the house is united, just as it was prophesied to happen, uh, there's been a lot of talk this week about unity and about how we need to handle uh, different situations with individuals the, the proper way and the way we're instructed to do so. And... Um, it can solve a lot of problems. And sometimes just, I've learned just having patience with somebody, and even if they're being a little bit ugly to you, um, sometimes that pays off. And if you haven't offended them by maybe rushing in a little too much, they'll, they'll be there to come to you if they find that repentance. And so, you know how, we hang on to things sometimes and think uh, think we have something really figured out. It might be even a simple truth. That sometimes something comes along a little later and it, it changes your perspective on it. You learn a little bit and, and uh, move. So we, you know, we need to give that, that same benefit to others, especially those uh, sincere brothers of ours that are really trying to, to find truth. So that takes us to uh, 
Ephesians 2 I'd like to touch on. It, it speaks of some unity, and I think it was brought out by one of the speakers, maybe on Friday. I did make a note of it. And we'll start uh, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So speaking to the Ephesians about that divorce and all that time without God. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God and one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye and no, are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief, the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So this, this ties it together too with uh, much more clarity, of course, for our day and shows those two houses coming together and that they came together with Christ just as it was prophesied. And, you know, a few things here tie in with some older stories we're going to go back to and look at. And, and these are stories in the past where Israel of old has, has fallen back, and specifically Judah, because these are times where Israel was either in danger of captivity or full on in the Syrian captivity. And even in spite of that, in spite of Judah seeing that punishment and that wrath being poured out, you know, amazingly to us, they keep shrinking back and keep holding up idols and, and just in egregious sin sometimes. And we sit here today at times and look back and think, well, how could they do that? And, you know, they do it just like we can do it. And, and it's even more shame on us when we do because as Christians we have the promised Holy Spirit and most of those didn't have. They, they had their instruction and it seems pretty simple just to keep it but as we can see in our day even, it just, uh, it, it's easily lost. So one of those stories 
we're going to end up going to uh, is a couple different times when the, the temple was in disarray. They, they gave up their practices. You know, the Levites were either pushed off or slacked off of their duties. And um, in a couple different periods of time, God raised up a king that cleaned house. And the good news about it is when this house was cleaned, it, it was, things changed in a hurry. You know, when that reform came, it was practically overnight compared to how long it took them to slide, slide back like they did. But just to touch again on the, on the patience and the, the things we learn as, as we continue to grow and continue to learn things, uh, one simple thing that Pastor Reed brought out, uh, he was talking about the Passover covenant and how when we keep it annually that uh, it's a reminder and it's kind of a renewal. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the exact terminology used, but, you know, we're, we're renewing that every year again. Well, that brought to mind a little little kind of funny story between my wife and I. Uh, over the years, from time to time, you know, maybe somebody would bring up about uh, renewing your wedding vows. And uh, I never liked that idea, you know. Just, just to be honest, just didn't really want to do it. And so I thought I had an ironclad reason to not do it. So I was ready for it, you know, and I thought, well, if I get asked, I'll... I got a great response. So it came up one time, and I said, yeah, you know, these uh, wedding vows, I said, uh, I'll tell you one thing, I meant them the day I said them, and I intend on keeping them. And I know what the scripture says about vows and how serious it is, and I, I meant that too, but I was using it to kind of, you know, block that off. And of course, you know, she couldn't say anything about it. So here all these years go by, and Pastor Benson just mentions that, that renewal, you know, and I thought, you know, it hit me, and uh, of course I could feel a pair of eyes cutting over from the side. <laughs> it's like, yeah, she caught it. <clears throat> and so the next thing I said was, that's a good point. <laughs> it's a good point. I'm going to have to look, look into that a little bit more. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's back in, in court. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's a good illustration of how we just think it's such a simple answer. And, oh, we, I've got it right there, and i got Scripture to back it. What can you say to that? And one little thing can knock that house of cards right down and make you reconsider so we're going to visit a, a couple of kings here, and the first one's going to be Hezekiah. This is a story of uh, this restoration of the temple, and we're going to go to Chronicles. We're going to go to Second Chronicles uh, 29 to start this off. 
can find it in Kings as well. I like the detail here. So 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and starting with verse 20. Hezekiah, he was the 13th king of Judah. And he reigned for 29 years. Uh, and sometime within this span of uh, 715 to 687 B.C. But we'll start off in verse 20. Then Hezekiah, the king, rose early and gathered the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven he-goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bullocks and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, when they had killed the rams, they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They killed also the lambs and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. And they brought forth the he-goats for the sin offering before the king and the congregation, and they laid their hands upon them. And the priests killed them, and they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, and of Gad the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. And so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David, and the priests with the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by King David of Israel. And all the congregation worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeter sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all that were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princess commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Then Hezekiah answered and said, now ye have consecrated yourselves unto the Lord. Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. And the congregation brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a free heart, burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings which the congregation brought was three score, score and ten bullocks, a hundred rams, two hundred lambs, all of these for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the consecrated things were 600 oxen and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few, so that they could not flay all the burnt offerings. Wherefore their brethren the Levites did help them till the work was ended, until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more upright in heart to sanctify themselves than the priests. And all the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order, and Hezekiah rejoiced in all the people that God had prepared the people, for this thing was done suddenly. So once this reform started taking place, and they got serious, 
and it started from the top down, uh, things happened in a hurry. And uh, another thing that was kind of skipped over too was uh, Hezekiah was the one that had taken, they still had that brass serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness to, uh, to heal the people. <clears throat> and a lot was said uh, this week about that, that uh, brass serpent. Well, Hezekiah was the one, <clears throat> when he started cleaning house earlier here, uh, they were taking that brass serpent and they were, they were bound to it and burning incense to it. And so uh, <clears throat> Hezekiah took it and just smashed it to pieces because it, it had become an idol. So uh, that's one subtle area in life where we can, when we wonder, well, how can they do that? You know, if you think about it, they've had to, they had to have their human reasoning and their excuses for it. You know, I'm sure if they were asked about it, said, well, we're not worshiping that. We're still worshiping our God. And this is just a symbol of it. And, uh, but, but it turned into idolatry. And Hezekiah knew it. And so uh, he's, he's the one that smashed it to pieces. And it ended that. So, of course, there's always danger of, of raising up other idols. But that's a good, subtle example to see how we can get off base so easily and get off track. Now, Nathan and uh, Seth were, were talking along those lines on, on their uh, recording they made the other day. And uh, something in Ephesians that we just read reminded me of it about Jesus being the cornerstone and you have the, uh, the foundations, the apostles. Well, you know how that movement went around, even came in some identity circles of this five-fold ministry, and they think, you know, we should be having these uh, apostles out here today, and, you know, they're not really thinking about, look, the foundation was laid, and it was built upon, and we're continuing to build on it, and uh, we don't need another foundation, and that's not what the Scripture's saying to do. But it's so easy to take a few verses and, and most of this false stuff starts right there, even with one verse many times. And they begin to weave this uh, doctrine around it. And pretty soon, you're way off here, and you've got a bunch of scripture to back what you're saying. But you're, you're way off the map, and it doesn't conform to the full scope of the scriptures. I think that was uh, brought up by Nathan, I believe, in a little bit different way. But... Uh, that was the point of it. And so we got to stay, stay close to the context and don't just, don't just feed on every little thing that comes along and get let, off, get let off by it, even though they can back most of it by Scripture. But that's how subtle it gets. And I'm sure with them having the same nature that we have, just began to slowly stray the same way and the next thing you know you know they're they're bound to this idol and probably honestly most of them aren't thinking they're not doing anything wrong they still think they're they're worshiping god
But Hezekiah, he went on from there. The first thing he did was, was clean house. And continuing here in uh, chapter 30, yeah, we read to the end of that. Uh, we'll see what the very next thing he did was. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, verse 1, and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem and keep the Passover on the Lord, uh, unto the Lord God of Israel. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover for the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently. Neither had people gathered themselves together in Jerusalem. So this, this was so important that they couldn't get it done in time that God actually allowed them to keep it on the next, next month. As astonishing as that is, you know, you'd think, no, it's, it's got to be on that 14th day. But uh, the Lord did make an exception there. And we don't have time to get into it, but as, as he sent messengers out to give, give letters to the northern house, the ones that still wanted to come and worship, uh, they were laughed to scorn. But scripture says here, I believe it's in this chapter, that uh, still some of them humbled themselves and they came. They came back to Jerusalem for the feast and it, it, it began to be restored. But not much long after Hezekiah, it started going downhill again. So it was, it was back to the backsliding again until... The great-grandson of Hezekiah was raised up, Josiah. Now, he was the 16th king of Judah. And this took place around 649 to 609 B.C., so somewhere in that, in that range that Josiah became king. And uh, he started... He started off at some point, too, cleaning house and getting back to what the Lord has commanded. So we'll stay in 2 Chronicles and go to chapter 34, where that story picks up. And we'll start with uh, verse 26. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord... So shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, this is speaking of Josiah, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against his place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes, and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. And this was at another time of wickedness and because he humbled himself and cried out God heard him verse 28 behold I will gather thee to thy fathers and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace neither shall thy eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same so they brought the king word again then the king sent and gathered together all the elders 
of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God, all his days that departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And this at one point became so remarkable when he restored course, the next thing he did, well, let, let's read verse uh, 1 out of 35, chapter 35. Moreover, Josiah kept a Passover unto the Lord in Jerusalem, and they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. So when that restoration happened, uh, and I believe he is the king who went up and destroyed that altar, um, in Dan or Bethel now, I, for, I forget, but that's the one that the, that unnamed prophet that God sent out of Judah up to Jeroboam and prophesied that that was going to be destroyed and those priest's bones were going to be ashes on it. Uh, that happened, in, I believe, in Josiah's day, and it was 300 years later after that prophecy, after that prophet said that. So even though it was a, it, it was a slow uh, judgment, it, it did come and, and happen, and uh, when, when they finished that destruction up there, they took the bones of that prophet and brought him back. So I thought that was an interesting side note in, in Josiah's reign. But I'd like to draw some parallels between these incidents in this history and early church history. So. Uh, I know Irenaeus was uh, mentioned a few times, the early church father. He recorded a lot of incidents that happened in the early church, so that's a good source to go back to and, and learn some early church history. But there was a bishop in Smyrna uh, named Polycarp, and... Um, There was an incident with him, so he, he was established there, and I, I think it was around 155 A.D. Uh, and keep in mind, the, the church body, of course, they call that Asia in their writings, and we know uh, Smyrna was in ancient Greece, but uh, I always refer to those areas as Asia Minor, but uh, some of the newer writings, yeah, sometimes it's a little more... Uh, Cloudy, how they, the, the descriptions they use, but um, you, you can see by reading a, a few of the commentaries. But anyway, there, there came a time, so this happens early on, you know, there, there had become a debate with uh, 
this Anicetus from uh, Rome. He was a bishop at Rome. And this was still in the days of one united church. We didn't have the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and the writings may refer to it as the Catholic Church, which just meant they were unified. But what the Western part of the church world started doing, they were keeping the Passover too on the 14th day because they were taught that. And what they started doing was saying, well, the 14th day is going to fall on this day of the week this year. Let's just wait until we meet again. We'll meet to the, on the next Lord's Day, and we'll keep the Passover then. So Polycarp visited Rome and, to make his case, and Polycarp was, uh, he was trained by, by John, the Apostle John. He lived in that day, and he was... Uh, and Irenaeus, uh, he, he recorded much of that. Uh, the upbringing that Polycarp had from John. So he wouldn't sway from it because he said, Hey, I, I was taught by Apostle John to keep the 14th day no matter what day of the week it fell on. And that's what we're going to do. Well, he couldn't convince this Anicetus, but remarkably, they still remained friends. So they had this division, you know, and you would think, well, Polycarp's got, he's got all the backing, he's got the scripture, it, and the western part of the church world was admitting they're, they're deviating from the, the, the scripture. They, they readily admitted, yes, we're moving it to the next Lord's Day, they call it. And uh, that's when we'll celebrate the Passover. So once they learned they couldn't convince the other one, they left it at that. And so for such a great issue for the, those two men to part ways in peace and leave it that way, and even with some derogatory comments toward uh, Polycarp, but not by that bishop from Rome, from, from others, you know, they... They started calling them uh, Quarto de Simeons, meaning 14, Quarto, 4, Deca, 10. And so that was kind of a derogatory term for them, but they still kept that 14th day for like 500 years in the Eastern church world at the time. So that battle, and so the Western part of the church world, they just, they just kept it on the next Lord's Day and started doing that and, and, and kept doing it. So. Uh, even the term Easter was never entered into it. They, they had no such thing at the time. Uh, it was all about the Passover and keep it on the 14th day or not. Well, we moved forward about 40 years. And there was a bishop in Ephesus named Polycrates. Well, that debate got heated up again. And uh, Victor was a bishop of Rome at the time. So there became an issue here, and Polycrates wrote a letter. I've got it here, but I'm not going to read that whole thing. But he basically just said, look, we've got all these church fathers. He learned it from Polycarp. Polycarp knew John, the apostle. And he lists all these other church fathers that followed the same thing. And, and he did a... He did a fine job in the letter. It wasn't, uh, 
wasn't mean-spirited at all, that he was standing his ground and kept his place. Well, Victor got upset about it and wrote a letter back and saying, well, they're all excommunicated in the East. He had no authority to do so. He was a bishop just like they were. And even some of Victor's own people said, look, you, you can't do that. You, you, ha you don't have the authority to do that. You can't do that over this. We're, we're the ones deviating from the scripture, even though they thought there was nothing wrong with doing that. And that, that was amazing to me. And that always reminded me of the story of, uh, of two men, we'll call one the walker and the other one the jumper. So the walker, he walks down the road and he comes on a bridge and there's a man standing on the edge of it about to jump. He said, don't do it. It's not worth it. Do you, do you believe in God? He's trying to talk to him and keep him distracted. And he, he said, yeah, I do. He said, well, are you a Christian? Yes. He said, well, me too, me too. He said, are you a Protestant? Yes. Me too, brother. Me, me too. You know, just keep, keep focused here. You don't want to do this. He said, uh, what, what affiliation are you? He said, Baptist. He said, me too, brother. Me, me too. This is good. And he pauses a second, he said, well, are you a Christian, Protestant, Baptist, Northern Conference, or are you a Christian, Baptist, Protestant, Southern Conference? He said, well, I'm a Christian, Protestant, Baptist, Northern Conference. Me too, my brother, me too. This, this is great. So the conversation kept going, and the walker, he paused again, he said, are you a Christian, Protestant, Baptist, Northern Conference Council of 1879? Or are you a Christian, Protestant, Baptist, Northern Conference Council of 1912? Jumper said, I'm a Christian, Baptist, Protestant, Northern Conference Council of 1912. And the walker said, die, heretic, and pushed him over. <laughs> and Extreme example, but I think it illustrates the point of how we can just get carried away with some minor points. And here's examples of early church fathers on something as important as Passover. You know, I wouldn't want to deviate from the 14th day. I don't think it's right. But despite that discrepancy, there was times that they still kept peace with one another and, and gave one another room with it. And it, it was remarkable to me that that, that went on. And there, there's, there's a lot of history that went back and forth through that time and later on, on as well. But I hope those parallels were a good example uh, of unity, um, the history of Passover, and I hope it was a benefit to you. Thank you.